Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes thought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came, having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. This is the word of the Lord. There's something about passionate people that I think either inspires us or deeply concerns us. I was thinking about this Friday night as I was surrounded by a completely packed stadium at Petco Park full of baseball fans on Beer Fest night uh, who were chanting, Beat LA, Beat LA, before the first inning was even underway. Um, If you're brave enough in a setting like that, or maybe dumb enough to show up in Dodger Blue, it's because you're a serious fan, and those fans... It was nice. They were quickly drowned out uh, by the Padre faithful. It was a lot of fun to watch as the passion and volume of the crowd would grow and swell in different moments because there's kind of a certain kind of buzz that we're aware of when you're in a group of people that are, that you're surrounded by a lot of passion. There's something about it that we actually enjoy. And it's not just something we experience in a baseball game. There's a music festival going on uh, not that far from here. It's maybe a couple hour drive. It's a massive event this weekend where people are passionate about their music. You, you don't have to go far even to find people maybe who are passionate about other things like their politics or, or passionate even about opinions regarding whether or not pineapple belongs on pizza. There are people, all of us have different forms of passion And passionate people often are polarizing because there's something about passionate people that either inspires us or leaves us, on the other hand, really deeply concerned. Someone's passion for a new restaurant they found, it can be a lot of fun. Someone's passion for a humanitarian crisis can be inspiring to us, but someone's passion that seems to cross the line into fanaticism can be deeply concerning for us. And in our story, passion is what's staged before us. Passion is what's leaving the room in the story we just read. It leaves the room divided on that evening. A passionate response to Jesus is what we all consider together as we look at this story. And you'll see in this story that there's something about passionate people that either inspires or it deeply concerns and maybe even divides us. You see, for us as a church, we're in the home stretch of Mark's gospel. If you're newer to our church, we've been journeying through it. I think this is our 45th week in Mark's gospel. We're not breaking any speed records. However, there there are things that have been building all along in Mark's gospel that are finally culminating in the section that you've now arrived at with us. You see, Mark's gospel, it's known as the fast-paced, action-packed gospel, where again and again, it gives the little wording where it says, and immediately, 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 the transition are quick from one story to the next. It logs far more of what Jesus did than what Jesus taught, and it moves at this quick pace constantly. But all of that changes when you land at Mark 14. It's the longest chapter in Mark's gospel for sure, but it's also the most detail-oriented part of all that Mark records for us. And you'll notice that the pace slows dramatically beginning at chapter 14, as we're looking at the final moments of Jesus' life on planet Earth. 
You see, Mark's story is now entirely focused on the coming crucifixion of Jesus, the looming cross ahead of him. And Mark 14, it logs the betrayal of Jesus. It's something that we'll spend probably four weeks looking at, going through the 72 verses that are recorded here. Technically, we've already cheated and moved ahead. We talked about Jesus in the Passover two weeks ago, and now we're coming back to where we were previously meant to pick up in chapter 14, verse 1. But you quickly, in this chapter, you get the sense that the end is near, not for the temple, but for Jesus himself. And Jesus knows it. Judas and the chief priests are plotting it. And this unnamed woman anoints Jesus for it. I mean, you may have already noticed that in chapter 13, the storm clouds have all come together in chapter 13 over the looming destruction that's coming in the city of Jerusalem, specifically to the temple. That's what chapter 13 is about. But you've probably started to pick up and see that chapter 14 is all about the storm clouds coming together, and they're situated above Jesus himself. The storm is coming his direction. In fact, there's a purposeful parallel, I think, here in these two chapters, where Jesus in chapter 13 predicts the destruction of the temple at the hands of the enemies of the Jews, and now Jesus' betrayal and destruction in chapter 14 comes at the hand of wicked men. And Jesus has drawn this parallel. You find it in John's Gospel, chapter 2. Where it says that Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. You may have also noticed that these opening 11 verses of chapter 14 are purposefully sandwiched together, three different stories placed together, holding within them one running theme. The passage is another example of something that we're accustomed to as we walk through Mark's gospel, something that theologians refer to as a Markin sandwich. It's this utilization that Mark has of a, a popular, poetic, creative writing style from back in his day that he uses more than a dozen times in his gospel, where he groups together multiple layers, multiple stories, and the top and bottom stories are best going to be understood, experienced, and tasted of when you experience the flavor of the middle story. To understand what's going on, you need to taste and understand the middle story. So in this passage, there's true chronological events that are taking place. It begins with one and ends with the other, what we just read. It's that the religious leaders have become determined, this is it, we're done with Jesus, we're going to find a way to kill him. And the second chronological moment is that the other piece in that story is that our story ends with Judas saying, and I've got a way that we could pull this off. And he goes to the religious leaders to sell Jesus out. But in the middle of that narrative, Mark intentionally places sandwiches, if you will, another story that directly relates to this moment. He recounts for his readers something that previously had happened a week before. When Jesus was preparing to enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, in fact, including to John's gospel account of this moment, it happened six days before the Passover. It's happening right before Jesus will enter in on Palm Sunday. So three layers of the story, what Mark is doing here, track with me, religious leaders, this unnamed woman's worship of Jesus, and then the disciple named Judas and his betrayal of Jesus, the centerpiece and in a way the toothpick that's holding it all together is the variety of people's reactions to Jesus. Are you tracking with me? It's showing how polarizing Jesus was as a character, as an individual, that he left people in one of two extreme camps with no middle ground to be found at all. In our story, everyone who is exposed to Jesus has a reaction and a strong response to him. I think Mark puts these together because he's trying to push on us to say, so where do you find yourself in this story? We've watched Jesus all through the gospel now. We've heard him teach. We've seen him do miracles. We've watched these things play out. Now he's saying, so where does your decision lie? Which person are you in this story? You don't get to be a bystander in the story. You get to find yourself instead seated in one of their chairs this morning in this story. Because the central story is the most important one that Mark is emphasizing here in this little vignette. That's what will turn the majority of our attention to this morning. That central story of this unnamed woman coming to worship Jesus 
really with great passion. And so we'll ask and answer three things quickly this morning. The first being this, who was present in this situation, in this meeting, in this room? Who was present there? Because this story is recorded in three of the Gospels. But then the second question is why they took issue with this passionate display here. Why did people choke on this? Why didn't they like it? But then the third question that we'll ask and answer is why Jesus affirmed the display of passion that's depicted here. And we're going to kind of answer that final question as we go. And then I will just wrap up by succinctly giving three little responses, but it's something we'll be addressing as we go. So who was present? Why did they choke on this? Why, why did they take issue with this display of passion? And then why did Jesus affirm this display of passion? So the first question of like, who is present in the scene? Well, the story is about Jesus and about this passionate display of love and gratitude for him by this nameless woman in the presence of his disciples and in the home of someone who we are introduced to as Simon the leper. I mean, it's kind of a wild thought that it's just like a little couple of words there. But when you slow down and think, what, what in the world? This is happening in the house of someone known as Simon the leper. I mean, who is this individual? The one that we're introduced to here. Every other leper that we've met in the life of Jesus is someone who comes to Jesus and is miraculously touched and healed of the sentence of death that had once been over their head. This was a fatal disease in antiquity. And so we can assume that this is Simon the foreman, former excuse me, leper, that he's someone who has been healed because when you think about it, dinner parties hosted by lepers were neither well attended nor were they legal in antiquity. <laughs> And it seems like a safe bet that if Simon's hosting a dinner party, Simon, the former leper, he's probably hosting it with Jesus in his presence. With Jesus as a guest, he's probably hosting it, and Jesus honors the one who healed him. Now, put yourself in the shoes of that guy, though, of the leper, Simon. It's crazy to think that at some point in time, he was given a diagnosis that was a death sentence. It's a terrible and lethal disease in antiquity, leprosy was attacking your neurological system, which would rob you of feeling and leave terrible infections and sores all over your body. In the end, many lepers would lose fingers and toes, digits, and, and even their noses or ears due to infection. There'd be a terrible stench that would follow them of their rotting, decaying flesh. And everywhere they went, they had to keep a distance between them and anyone else, yelling out again and again and again, unclean, unclean, so people would stay far enough away from them. You see, that would be the hardest thing about that diagnosis that was given in an instant is that it would change the person's life forever because they'd live and they'd die in isolation. You could find a sore in the morning, have it checked in the afternoon at the temple by a priest, and erring on the side of caution for fear of the spread of this deadly disease, you could find yourself pushed out of your home and out to the outskirts of the city very, very quickly without even the opportunity to hug your wife or your children goodbye. But this man's story ends clearly very differently than most of those who also shared his diagnosis. Most of them would have died alone and in obscurity. But this guy, he's hosting a meal, a feast, because Jesus must have healed him and touched him because he was rescued and saved by Jesus. So wouldn't you, if you're that person, feel so very indebted to Jesus? Wouldn't you do anything you could to repay him for the gift of life and of hope and of peace and of joy and of family and of belonging? Longing again. Wouldn't he deserve anything and everything that you could ever give to him? Are we Simon in the story? So deeply indebted to Jesus. The writings of the Essenes that were found in the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948 included more than just ancient handwritten copies of the scriptures. They recorded a lot of different historical facts about the time frame around the life of Jesus, including the detail that the lepers, and I quote, of Jerusalem were kept separate from the city east of the city. That if someone had lived in the city and been diagnosed with leprosy, they'd be pushed far to the east, two miles east of Jerusalem, to the city of Bethany. There's a Greek lexicon that looks at the title of the name Bethany, the city, and defines it as, here's what it means, the house of depression or of misery. Pushed from society to go live in the community they called the house 
of depression and misery. The people who were ill or too poor to find themselves in the city of Jerusalem, that's where they went. And it's beautiful that that's where we find Jesus. We're talking about God leaving the majesty and glory of heaven, and that's where we find him, in the place known as miserable and depressing. Because he wants to sit with people in their misery, and he would not leave them in it, would he? He seems to be doing the miraculous there. It's encouraging to me that Jesus sought after the people that others avoided, especially those seemingly that the self-righteous religious leader seemed to avoid. And that's a pattern that God has demonstrated throughout all of Scripture. Think about it. His, his birth announcement, it came to shepherds, unlikely characters. He came and grew up in a community called Nazareth that they said, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's, it's, I don't want to offend people. It's like West Virginia or something. I don't know. Like <laughs> His disciples were people he took from the workforce, not from the rabbinic schools of the day, meaning they'd already been passed over and said, go learn the family trade and get a job, pal, because you're not going to make it. His friends were those who the culture had defined as the sinners, those who had failed to reach and to please God and had given up completely. And Jesus was seen with them enough that they referred to him as his friends. And his final days were spent in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, the house of misery and sorrow. It's both encouraging for me because it tells me he cares for me, but it is deeply challenging to me that I ought to reflect that kind of care to the kind of people that Jesus loved. Jesus was never too good for anyone. And I'd assume that this is probably a pretty dangerous move for this guy, Simon, at this point in Jesus' life and story, to be seen with Jesus, much less to be housing Jesus. But Jesus had saved his life. So how in the world could some potential backlash compare or even matter to him? Why would Simon withdraw from Jesus, the one who had drawn near to him to touch and to heal him and to give him life again, removing the sentence of death from over his head? Are you Simon in the story? Then entering stage left in our drama comes this nameless woman, and we have to ask the question, well, then who was the lady who enters the scene? And John's gospel names the woman for us. This is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha, the, the Mary who chose to sit at Jesus' feet rather than run around frantic when they had previously had him in their own home serving him a meal. She had a brother named Lazarus. You might remember his story, whom Jesus raised from the dead. But you remember before he did, he stood and wept with Mary in the hour of her deepest and greatest of sorrows. Mary knew that she was indebted to Jesus because of Lazarus and how he'd raised him from the dead. And I know that she felt that way because she responded in this way. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on top of his head. John's gospel tells us that in addition to anointing Jesus' head, she anoints his feet as well, even wiping his feet with her hair, leaving the entire house overwhelmed with this powerful fragrance. There's three Greek words that explain what this oil was, this, this spike nard. The first one is nardos. It's explaining where this ointment came from. It's, it's a perfume that came from India that would be procured from the hills of the banks of the Ganges River. It's crushed root of a rare plant that has a very rare scent to it. The other Greek word, it speaks of the fact that this was genuine, not some cheap alternative knockoff. No, this was the real deal. And the other word that's used to describe this oil that was poured on Jesus makes it clear that it was extremely costly, that it was precious and expensive for $20 on Amazon. You can have a sniff of the cheap version or save yourself the $20. I bought it and I will put it because I forgot to earlier. I will put it out by the coffee when we're done and you can take a little dab of the essential oil and smell it for yourself. I decided I wouldn't just break a bottle in here because that's like sensory assault uh, to do that. And we've all worked with someone who's like into essential oils and basically commits sensory assault every time they come to the office. And so we, most of us know what that is like. So I decided I would not do that to you, but down by the coffee today, you can have a sniff of the cheap imitation for sure. Far more valuable though for her than a cheap, quick Amazon order. This was worth, it says 300. Think about this. This is worth 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage for a laborer. The disciples said previously in Mark's gospel that 
200 denarii could have fed 5,000 men. This was a year's salary for a laborer. We're talking in excess of $50,000. This is buy a new car or break the bank at the feet and head of Jesus. What made it even more valuable was that a woman typically was not allowed to work in such a male-dominated society. Her inability to be gainfully employed meant that this was potentially all that she had and track with me, all that she would have. Most commentators would assume and agree that this was her dowry. A dowry is a valuable gift, an item, a precious metal, or even a piece of land that was given to by the bride's father to her new husband at their wedding day. And it was not a gift for the groom so much as it was a gift for the bride by her father so that if the groom ever ill had treated her illy or was abusive or bailed or even just simply died, then she could sell that precious gift and live off of that amount. So for her to have this precious item in her possession, especially someone who lives in the house of misery, I'm assuming she's not wealthy and that this is not just a part of her opulence. I'm assuming that this is everything she had and that it implies to me that she's already suffered some serious loss to have it in her possession. That she's already buried a husband or been left by one. This very well could be all that she had and this very well could be then every bit of security, please hear me, that she possessed. How else would she make an income or provide for her needs? Please hear me. This was not just wealth in liquid form. This was security in its only form in her life. And yet she broke it and poured it on the one that she loved. And she didn't just pour some. She broke the bottle open and poured all. John's gospel says it's a pound of it. It's a pint of it. A pint glass worth of this oil broken over Jesus' head, running down his hair and his beard, saturating his robe, dripping down towards his feet, the whole house permeated with the scent of it. I recently began reading a book by John Tyson that's entitled The Burden is Light. The subtitle is Liberating Your Life from the Tyranny of Performance and Success. I've really enjoyed it. But here's what he said about this moment. He said, the smell in that room became a tangible metaphor of her devotion to her Lord. She poured all that she had without reservation. Are you Mary in the story? Who worshiped Jesus passionately without restraint or care for who saw it or what it cost her personally, even if it cost her her own security because she instead found security and significance in Jesus himself. The room was filled with this aroma and some in that moment, it tells you, breathed it in and loved it. At least one did while others voice their frustration with it. You see, in our story, Mary and Simon have so much in common. They saw themselves as incredibly indebted to Jesus, so they loved Jesus passionately and without restraint. But the Mark and Sandwich was put together really to display a contrast more than a comparison. To contrast, yes, Mary and Simon with Judas and the religious leaders. So in asking those questions, who is present in that display of passion? Well, these are the key players, but why? This is our second question. Why did they take issue with this display of passion? You see, the truth is that for some of us, as we even read the story, we naturally find this story to be the source of some internal conflict. While others of you see it as the most beautiful of scenes, maybe even in all of Scripture, For some, we view it as this is excessive, this is too extravagant, this may even be classified as wasteful, while for others, you see it as beautiful. So why did they take issue with the display of passion that's before us? Well, the first reason I think they took issue with it was because they thought of it as excessive and fanatical. They thought of it as excessive and fanatical. Mary comes and gives her absolute best to Jesus. She gives without restraint to Jesus. She gave with passion to Jesus. She gave without care or regard for others when she gave to Jesus. And this is such a controversial, provocative, and dare I say even scandalous act of a woman doing this for a man publicly that 2,000 years later was still talking about it. My friends, no matter, though, what others may say or think about my worship or your worship or our service to Jesus, the most important thing is that our aim is to please him. 
Our aim in life as his followers and people is not just to keep the peace or to preserve relationships or maintain people's respect or admiration. Our main aim is to please the one we love who loved us first. And the fact that others may criticize and and, and may misunderstand us puts us maybe in good company. But it should never keep us from showing our love for Jesus. And I would argue it never will keep us from showing our love for Jesus if we believe we are truly indebted to him, like Mary seemed to believe she was. You see, in contrast, the religious leaders, they want nothing to do with Jesus because it required that they would repent and humbly admit publicly their error. Because Jesus was a threat to their dreams and their way of life, they weren't willing to let go of those things, and so there's no way that they would come to Jesus like this. Because for them to follow Jesus meant that they were no longer the most important person in their community, much less even the most important person even in their own lives and minds themselves. So instead they resent and hate Jesus. And it's not because of his failure, but because of their own. In fact, they resent and hate Jesus, and it was because he was the one that seemed to expose their deep brokenness. And they wanted him dead because of it. Why did they take issue with this display of passion? Because they thought of it as excessive and fanatical. Now, I'll be honest with you. I see that there is a massive difference between fanaticism and passionate faith and devotion to Jesus. Please hear me say that people who become fanatical, they do not reach that position and place because they took the gospel too serious. It's because they didn't take it serious enough. Because fanaticism is often marked by self-righteousness and a harsh and critical attitude of others. And those things, when they're present in someone's life, they reveal a terrible and potentially fatal flaw in a person's understanding of the gospel itself. It reveals a misguided view of Christianity as a form of moral self-help and often produces an expectations that others get to my level of effort rather than embracing a gospel of grace that's byproduct produces gratitude and graciousness, gratitude and humility before God and graciousness towards other people because the gospel is humbling. Please hear me say again, people who have become fanatical did not reach that position or place because they took the gospel too serious. It's because they didn't take it serious enough. Because the gospel tells me I'm far worse than I'd ever imagined, and yet simultaneously proves to me that I'm far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. Therefore, its byproduct and fruit in someone's life would never be self-righteousness or harshness. Its byproduct is not self-righteousness nor criticalness. The byproduct of taking the gospel too serious is a love, a passionate love, even for your enemies. That's the byproduct of taking the gospel too serious. I'll read you a quote. We will be able to call even our enemies to repentance and reconciliation with God only when foremost in our mind is not what they have done to us, but what Christ has done for us. That's a quote from the pastor in Ukraine we've been supporting this week that he posted online about the Russian invasion. This is what it looks like to take Jesus seriously. To take the gospel too seriously, what does it look like to love your enemies? It looks like being able to call even our enemies to repentance and reconciliation with God when foremost in our mind is not what they have done to me, but what Christ has done for me. You see, they took issue with this display of passion because this they, they thought of as excessive and fanatical, but this wasn't fanatical. It was a beautiful expression of faith and love for Jesus. The other reason I think they might have taken issue with this is because they were more, they said that there were more pressing needs to prioritize. Isn't that what they brought up? That there were more pressing needs to prioritize above anointing Jesus was selling this in order to give to the poor. And in verse 7, we can read it where Jesus says, look in your Bible, for you have the poor with you always. We can read that statement and scratch our head and say, is Jesus telling us? 
that we shouldn't be concerned with the poor because some throughout the ages have said just that. Well, that Jesus has given us a license not to care about or engage with poor people and those in need. And I think that's a terrible misunderstanding of what Jesus said and a terrible misrepresentation of the heart of God for the poor and the needy. Think about Jesus as an example. He personally cared for those in need. Remember, he was drawn to those in need. He fed those who were hungry. He, he gave attention to those who were needy. He went and healed a lame man at Bethesda. Uh, at the pools of Bethesda. He, he went and found the man in Jericho who was blind named Bartimaeus and restored his sight. Jesus was drawn to those who were poor. And then Jesus taught us to engage with the poor. Matthew 25, he says this. Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then it says, we will say to him, when did that happen? And Jesus responded and said, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. It's Luke 3 when Jesus said, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Listen, the rest of Scripture, it's not just Jesus' example and his teaching. The rest of Scripture teach us to care for the poor and those in need. James 1.27, a beautiful verse says that pure and genuine religion in the sight of God and the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Even Mark's account here of what Jesus says, where Jesus says, you will have the poor with you always, seems to be a quotation from the law of Moses, quoting from Deuteronomy 15, and I'll quote it to you, that says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Clearly, this is not at all teaching to not care for the poor. Clearly, this is not at all meant to be a license to not engage with the needs of communities around us. Instead, it's Jesus, I believe, quoting a passage that they would have known and understood he was quoting from that says that I should live with an open hand. Jesus' statement here, though, is about affirming Mary's awareness of the weight of the moment and affirming Mary's willingness to self-sacrificially give so much. For Mary, this is not her first time hosting Jesus. And in the prior dinner party, he affirmed her devotion as she sat at his feet and chose the better thing, Jesus said. And here we find that same heart of devotion over duty on display. We find that heart in Mary. Why they took issue with this display of passion? Because they said that there were more pressing needs to prioritize. I don't want you to think that the point of this message and that my push on you today is so I want you to give lavishly to our church because we've just brought someone up and introduced them to you that we brought on our team. That's If you think that's the point here, then I want you to know my point and push on you is much higher than this because I think what Jesus is asking for is better than that. It's bigger than that. I'm not, I'm not pushing you for your money to say break open your, your piggy bank today. Jesus is pushing, I think, in this story for a far bigger ask than that, that you would give every ounce of yourself to him every single day. It's Paul as he wrote the church in Rome. He wrote it this way. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies, dedicating all of yourself as set apart as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God, which is your rational, your logical, your intelligent response and act of worship. Please hear me, when you truly encounter the love of God in Christ, breaking the bottle is the only appropriate response. You get to, between you and Jesus, decide, what is that bottle, Jesus, you're asking me to break, and how do I do it, and where do I do it, and what does that look like? The other reason they took issue with this, the Bible's very clear, is because of covetousness. Why did they take issue with this moment? It wasn't just because this seemed excessive, which they did say, and maybe even fanatical. It wasn't just because they said that there were other needs that ought to be prioritized over this. It was because of covetousness that they choked on this. You see, our attention in the room quickly turns towards Judas himself. And he's not re remembered in the fondest of lights, nor were the fondest of terms used to describe Judas. In fact, Jesus called him the son of perdition. 
the son of waste. Isn't that interesting? Judas will complain in this moment that she's wasting her resources where Jesus with compassion looks at him. And in John's gospel says that he ends up referring to him as the son of waste himself. He wasted his very life. Satan himself will possess Judas when he betrays Jesus in our story. It's why Judas has never landed on the name of most popular baby names or that list of most popular baby names at any point in human history. And his motives, Judas's, are notoriously hard to guess. But John's gospel points our attention towards Judas' covetousness. John's gospel says the chief complainer in the room was Judas himself. John chapter 12 says it this way. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. His concern wasn't for the poor, for their stomachs. It was for himself, for his own pockets, because he was the treasurer who took money for himself. See, the problem for us is that covetousness, it it doesn't particularly startle or concern us. And I would say it's probably because it's so subtle and also because it's so pervasive in the 21st century in the Western world. We don't think of this as a big deal to want what others have, to be jealous. We, we don't think of these as being toxic motivations because those things impel us and drive us to be more driven individuals and to work and work and work and destroy our homes and families. And yet, in the Western world, you're applauded all the while saying, you're such a great employee and, and, and you haven't missed a day of work yet. And, and we're, the rest of us are like, leave your essential oils and your sickness at home and like come to work in more balanced harmony. And, but as one commentator put it, This was the master motive of Judas' life, covetousness. Think about this. Idolatry is not just something people are guilty of when they bow in front of tiny statues. Idolatry is something we're guilty of when we bend, bow, yield, and restructure the order of our loves and leave Christ himself out of that sheep or top position. When our master motive is something less than and separate from God himself. You see, idolatry's danger is not just relational fallout between God and I. It's that I crush myself and others under the weight that only God can bear when he's not the place and position of the highest priority of my life. If money becomes my master motive, I will crush my health, I will crush my family, I will crush my relationships if need be in order to get what I value most, which is more money. If a relationship has become my master motive, then you will crush the person. You will crush your partner under the weight of your own happiness because you now expect of them the thing that only God can give you, which is your wholeness. If success in your endeavors has become your master motive, then your work is no longer just that. It's now your scorecard. And your hobbies are no longer just that. You've suffocated the joy and fun out of those things because they've become your defining moment of self-worth. Listen, you've seen there's subtle danger in idolatry, in disordered loves. And it's not just the distance that it creates between you and the God who loves you. It's that it simultaneously creates disorientation and disintegration in every area of our lives. But we have to ask ourselves and be honest with the question. Is Jesus a mere commodity or is he the highest value and greatest treasure of my life? For Judas, power and money, security found their place above Jesus as the highest value and most treasured things to Judas. And listen, not all of us are called to pour out costly ointment on Jesus' body, but all of us should lavishly love Jesus. In our story, though, one sacrificed everything for Jesus, while the other sacrificed Jesus for himself. And the contrast could not be more pronounced or clear. Mary is generous in the story, while Judas is greedy. Mary is humble, while Judas is arrogant. Mary is selfless while Judas remains self-centered. I mean, look at the scene and you, 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 you find Judas standing aloof while Mary is found kneeling in humble adoration. Today, they serve as this vivid, contrasting illustrations of something that Jesus taught. He taught that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Again, quoting from John Tyson's book, The Burden is Light, he said it this way. He said, another reason I can resist the passionate devotion of others is that it holds a mirror up to my motives. We ask ourselves, or I'm sorry, we ask others, just be reasonable because they threaten our comfortable standard of devotion. Passionate people. You see, the thing that amazes me most is not necessarily the covetousness that took root and became a motive of Judas' betrayal of Jesus. It's Judas' callousness that enabled him to turn on Jesus that's stunning and has a a tendency to leave many of us speechless. In fact, in the end, he will sell Jesus out for the price of a common slave in the ancient world. And it's so sad and unfathomable, it's crazy for us to think that someone could spend that much time with Jesus and not be affected by it. Not be affected by what he heard and saw, that it didn't penetrate his heart personally. But what about us? If we're honest with ourselves... Because we can, we can be harsh about Judas and we can look and say, well, look at his disappointment because Jesus didn't meet his expectations as the Messiah, the promised deliverer and savior. Look at his disillusionment with the allocation of Jesus' resources, that Jesus celebrated something like that. Look at his disdain and discouragement that others were noted and praised when he wasn't. And then finally, look at the fact that he left, he betrayed him, he gave up, he walked out. But if we're vulnerable for a moment, we can admit that we're not always Jesus in the story. I wish that I was. But this is the first time I approach a story and say, I wish I was Mary. It's maybe the first time you look at a story and say, I wish that I was the leper. Because everyone else who seems whole and and contained and in their right mind, they're a mess in the story. But I realize that I can resemble the religious leaders or the disciples who, who cast their frustration and comments and, and not, uh, through their, their insults, her direction, or even Judas himself. Because I can find myself in that same broken pattern of disappointment that Jesus doesn't meet my expectations of being the Savior who'd save me from the things I wish he'd save me from. The disillusionment with the allocation of Jesus' resources that Jesus freely gives to others, but where am I? The disdain and discouragement that others were noted and celebrated. Look at what God's doing in their lives. Or look how blessed and fortunate they are. But what about us? And then finally for us, it leads to a form of betrayal where we're no longer trusting him or leaning in at all. Listen, land the plane with me. Because we're asking these questions about this story of passion, the display of passion. First was just who was present in the room during this display of passion. But then the other question is, why did some of them disdain the moment of passion? And maybe some of it was because they saw that it was excessive and over the top, or they they thought that there were more pressing needs like the poor, or because of their own hard hearts and covetousness. The last thing is to answer why Jesus affirmed the display of passion. Why did Jesus affirm this display of passion? And we've kind of already answered this as we went, but I just want to give you three succinct things for you to chew on. The first is that Jesus affirmed this display of passion because it was anointing a king before his coronation. Because the moment was anointing a king before his coronation. You see, just like the ancient kings of Israel who come before Jesus... Just as they had oil that would publicly be poured over their head to drip down off their hair and run down off their beard and cover their clothing and then pool around their feet. Just as they would publicly have that done to recognize that this was God's choice, that the oil was the work of the spirit, not just to choose them, but now to fill and use them to accomplish God's grand purpose of leading his people forward. This is Jesus being anointed as king before a coronation. He's publicly anointed with precious oil being poured on his head. He was truly the great Mashiach, the Messiah. It literally means the anointed one, the promised deliverer from the Old Testament that was called the anointed one is here finally being anointed before he would take his rightful place enthroned over creation. The coronation of our king, though, would just be days away where those who would crucify him would mockingly place a crown of thorns on his head and a robe on his back, and they would cry out, All hail the king of the Jews. They mocked him because they could not imagine a king ascending to his throne without a sword being wielded by him. 
Jesus would shock them all when he would establish his kingdom just like every other ancient revolutionary and leader had before him with a violent act and demonstration and bloodshed. But it would not be done in such a way that that anyone had ever done it before or ever has done it since because Jesus would not go out shedding the blood of others. He would instead establish his kingdom with the shedding of his own blood. And after his resurrection and ascension, where do we find Jesus in the story? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Seated in his position of power and prominence. Seated enthroned over all of creation. Jesus affirmed this moment because this was the anointing of a king before his coronation. Here's the second thing. He affirmed this moment because it was the announcement. Please hear me. This was the announcing of his sacrifice and death. The announcing of his sacrifice and death. Mary's lavish gift is not just any perfume. It's perfume that was meant for Jesus' burial. That's what Jesus himself said. Did you catch that in our story? In Mark 14, beginning in verse 8, look in verse 8 where it says that she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Did you catch it? According to Jesus, Mary's the only one in the room who's rightly discerning the moment. As the Gospels repeatedly show you, Jesus knew this was coming. He knew he was going to die. He told us he was doing it on purpose even. But the disciples, they're failing to understand it all throughout the Gospel records. But now there's one in the room who it seems to be hinting to us is is beginning to get it. Mary alone may have seen it. It's amazing when you think about it that for Mary, in the hour of her deepest grief and greatest sorrow, Jesus appeared by her side and raised her brother to life again. And now in Jesus' hour of deepest grief and greatest sorrow, Mary alone amongst all of humanity seems to see it and is drawn near to him and begins to anoint him for burial, a burial that's coming on the other side of a cross. Don't miss this. The simple yet profound beauty of the moment is that someone sat with him in his sorrow. Someone showed him that they saw it. Someone demonstrated their deep gratitude for it. Verse 6 in the ESV translation, it renders it this way, where Jesus speaks up and replies, leave her alone, don't trouble her. She's done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 9, assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus affirmed this because this was the anointing of a king, Before his coronation, he would affirm this because this was the announcing of his sacrifice and death. But a final thing is this. He would affirm this because it was what Jesus would do for her. He would affirm this because this is what Jesus would do for her. Did you notice in the story the way that Jesus connected together the gospel and this act? Saying that everywhere the gospel is preached, this act will be memorialized because this is the gospel. The unrestrained, uncalculated outpouring of love is godlike in this moment in that it's exactly what God has done for us. And this is our right response to the gospel, to give an unrestrained, uncalculated outpouring of love and devotion to Jesus. You can say it this way, that she was the only one who understood the intensity of Jesus' love for us. She's the only one to reciprocate the passion of Jesus' love for us. When Mary broke that bottle and poured out every last drop of that oil, she prophetically depicted what Jesus himself would do for us. And in his immense love for sinners, he too would be despised and ridiculed and rejected, and yet he would break more than a bottle. His own body would be broken and his blood would be poured out to life had left the vessel of his body. This was the extravagant, over-the-top love of God on display for the world to see so that the world might be reconciled back to himself. That is why Jesus affirmed this. You know, there's another story early in Luke's gospel that some people think maybe is another, it's another view of this moment. Many, though, think that it's, it's a different moment early in Jesus' story and ministry where there's another woman who comes to Jesus and begins to anoint him with oil. 
It's another woman who washes his feet with her tears and wipes them clean with her hair. It's another moment where others balked at her unrestrained expression of love and devotion. But Jesus responded, Luke 7, verse 47, saying, I tell you her sins that were many have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. Why did he, why was she showing so much love? Because her sin was forgiven and he said her sin was great. Here's how he finishes. He says, but a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. Jesus is teaching that there's this direct correlation between my awareness to my indebtedness to Jesus and my response to Jesus. A connection between my understanding, between how bad I've wronged him, a connection between how how good he's been to me, and then how I will respond to him in light of those realities. If he really is who he said he is, and he really did what the book tells me he did for me, is there anything too valuable or precious for him? Is there anything that I could withhold from him saying he's undeserving of this? Please don't miss this. This is it. Our story, it's undoubtedly a true story. It's a real story, an actual event that happened in history. But this story, it's also meant to undoubtedly serve as a contrast. There's a contrast here, displaying people's differing responses to Jesus. But the story is also meant to, to, to serve as a challenge and invitation. Because the reader is meant to be left wondering, where do I find myself in this story? Am I like the religious leaders or Judas? Am I Simon or Mary? Remember, Mark's gospel is the earliest of the four to be written and then mass distributed in the 60s AD, when Caesar Nero would take the throne of power over the Roman Empire, where he would hunt down and persecute, arrest and murder countless Christians in that era. And here Mark sandwiches these stories together to show people the responses to Jesus. Some who were disillusioned and gave up. Some who were disappointed and betrayed. But do you see what, what Mark is noting here about Jesus? That while they were being persecuted, hunted down, and murdered, that Jesus in the story is affirming the one who is willing to pour out everything for him. Saying, regardless of other people in the room who say that's a waste, that Jesus stood up and said, no, this is right. It was the ultimate beautiful act of worship, a living sacrifice. For the first century church, this would have served as as a challenge and an invitation to not hold anything back in the midst of such persecution, that Jesus himself would stand and say, it's not a waste. My friend, in your 21st century life, I can't fill in the blank with persecution because I don't know your story. I'm not a historian looking back, telling the story of what God's doing in your life. I don't know what you'd fill the blank in with right now. As far as your own hurt or maybe disappointment, the own, your own challenge that you're facing, the same invitation stands and echoes today. Will you pour out every last drop for Jesus? He would never ask of you what he would not first do for you. Jesus would go to a cross, and what would be broken would be more than just a precious flask. What would be broken was his own body. How do we respond to the one who would be broken and pour out everything for us? Even in the midst of whatever you fill in that blank with. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.